Broadcasting live from Elvis Presley has to think about his whole life before he shoots this television. <laughs> this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett Strother. And I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly. Oh, had to throw something in there. That's good. <laughs> I liked that. Could you, could you hear my lip curling as I did that? I think there's only one way to do it, Elvis. <laughs> that, yeah, I, that... <laughs> physicality to it just like you have to flatten them out your palms face yeah, you them gotta... down and kind of move them back and forth yeah you, you gotta throw a couple wild karate chops out there too <laughs> yeah you got we, we understand elvis this week uh, folks we get it because we're not covering the new boz lerman elvis uh nightmare epic <laughs> uh whatever you want to call it i have seen it so i will be talking about it during our main segment but Seamus and I are checking off a pretty significant box, I think, for both of us, which is the first actual collaboration, but the last one that we have seen between director John Carpenter and actor Kurt Russell in 1979's made-for-TV movie, Elvis. What a wild ride we went on just yesterday. It is a three-hour-long TV movie, and it is iconic, maybe? Are we going to be quoting this version of Elvis forever now? Give me one quote from this movie, Seamus, and I'll, and I'll let you know. Well, we we just keep saying baby and mama, but like I'm channeling <laughs> Kurt when I'm doing that. I'm not it's channeling not Elvis. Elvis himself. Yeah. It's Kurt as Elvis. You That's know? true. That's very true, especially the mama. <laughs> Which we'll oh, yeah, get oh, yeah. into momentarily. Oh, but first up, why don't we jump into the news? Yes, please. Starting off with a sad goodbye to legendary actor James Caan, who just passed away this week. Age 82. I think James Caan is one of those actors that never really went out of popularity or out of relevance. Because starting in the 70s, obviously... Sonny Corleone in The Godfather, oh, yeah. that is an iconic role. I think in a in a movie full of iconic roles, he really stands on his own, and I think he has one of the more iconic sequences is his last sequence in that movie. Definitely iconic. That is, that is memorable to no end. And my little, like, eight-year-old brain will also be forever scarred by watching his ankles get crushed in misery on a VHS tape yeah. in my room. Like, just absolutely scarring me for life. Not to mention a great performance in Michael Mann's Thief. And I always go back to Elf. He is an incredibly great, begrudging, weird, estranged Elf father in oh, that movie. He is great in that movie. He really yeah. is fantastic in that movie. I saw an interview. It might have been on that stupid uh, Netflix, the movies that we liked when we were kids or whatever that what? show is oh, called. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not good, but it's <laughs> it's still interesting because they get interesting people to come in and talk about the movies and stuff. I remember on the Elf one of those, it talks about how James Caan... The first day on set was like, "Hey, everybody, just so you know, James Con. I know I have, I know I have a reputation for being headstrong and maybe a little bit curt. At the end of this shoot, everybody is gonna go. James Con was a pleasure to work with, and by <laughs> all accounts, he was on the show. Oh, that's that awesome! Shoot, so that's so nice. That is a, it's the spirit of Christmas. I tell you, I really got into that James Con. <laughs> I mean, I think that's probably the thing that he's most well known for now. That's a certified classic." Oh yeah, it's on on repeat every Christmas on ABC. So everybody knows, is tangentially aware of him at least. A very full life. He seemed pretty active up until the end. He did you follow him on Twitter, Seamus? Oh, I did not. Was he a big Twitter guy? He really was actually. It was kind of hilarious because he would tweet a lot of different stuff. He would tweet his you know his opinions. He would tweet about his friends or what he was working on. But a lot of the time, he would just tweet like. A picture of him and Al Pacino on set or something. Oh, he'd be like, that's awesome. "Me and Al." End oh, of tweet. Yeah. And every single tweet he ended with "End of tweet." <laughs> for real? Oh, what a legend! That's so cool. Except for notably one time recently, actually after the passing of Ray Liotta, he tweeted "Not Ray" with a heartbreak emoji, and some <sighs> other guy tweeted "End of tweet?" question mark And the James Con said. Do better at a time like this, you rat. <laughs> oh my god! What? That is so 
that is so funny. That is so dark and weird and funny. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard. So I think oh, all God. of us rats oh. <laughs> can do better at a time like this oh, in honor God, of GamesCon. That's a tattoo right there. That's a t-shirt somewhere. My God, I, I'll think of that line forever now. Great actor, great legacy. Uh, he gave us Scott Con, which I, I appreciate him doing very much. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, he was on Hawaii Five-0, James Con was, I think, as Scott Con's character's dad. I didn't get oh. that far, but I know he was <laughs> on it. So, I'll, Legacies. Maybe, maybe we could mine that, Seamus. That's our... Oh, yeah. We, we start our, our Hawaii Five-0 cast. <laughs> How can you name a podcast? Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> Uh, not Hawaii Five Bros. We kind of fit oh, that okay. into pretty much yeah. everything. Yeah, that's but that's pretty good though. Um, <laughs> cast them, Dano. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm also realizing if we called it Ho- Hawaii Five Bros, we would need three other people to be on oh, here we with could us. Get the... Three other guys to talk about Hawaii Five with us. Come <laughs> okay, on. okay, probably, probably. Our last piece of news is a follow up on a piece of news from a few weeks ago. We had recently said that Nev Campbell was not going to appear in Scream 6 because she was not being paid basically what she felt her presence in the franchise was worth, which I personally think is everything. Yeah, are you kidding me? She's the the heart and soul of that entire franchise. You didn't see the new Scream, right? I did not yet, but I very much want to. We should watch that sometime because it's really pretty good. I think it's probably my, my third favorite in the franchise. Which is not oh, yeah. saying much, I guess. But that, no, yeah, I guess that's fair. Wait, really? Actually, that that now I now I I'm I'm remembering four is in the mix there. Four is pretty to, good. Four I is, like four, four a lot. Yeah. Good. Nev Campbell is going to be in Scream Six and have a much larger role in Scream Seven, which I'm really happy about because the reason I asked if you've seen the new Scream is because while I think Sydney's presence in the film is good and i think it works within the context of this they're doing like a legacy reboot riff with the new scream and i think that's a really effective way to go at the scream franchise right now it unfortunately means that they don't really focus quite enough on sydney that i feel that it's warranted for them to pass the torch on to the new set of characters yet. I think you need to wrap sure, up yeah. Sydney's story a little bit better. Because 3, despite being not very good, does a really good job of ending Sydney's story. And then 4 happens and is also really good. And if 4 were the last Scream movie, I think that it would be a fine place to end Sydney's story. But I think bringing her back into the fold the way they do in Scream 5... And then not giving her as much to do as I think they probably need to. I am, again, still super interested in seeing five. That, what you're saying there, and the fact that they're already saying that even though she is going to be in six, seven is really going to be where she's going to be utilized a lot more. That makes me a little scared that we're going to have a Jamie Lee Curtis in the new Halloween movie. Or I guess she, she was great in the Halloween 2016, but what they did with her and kind of sidelined her in a super obvious and not satisfying way in Halloween Kills. I, I hope that isn't kind of what they're writing around with the concepts they already have before they can slot her back into a more main role in 7. Honestly, with the promise of her coming back in 7, as long as 6 isn't bad, I wouldn't even necessarily mind her being sidelined. Because she was already pretty much sidelined at 5, to be honest. Again, mm. you've not seen it, but... But better than what they did with Jamie Lee oh, in Halloween for Kills. for sure. I really okay, liked good. 5. Again, I really liked 5. I'm still really hyped for these new ones coming out. I have been a lifelong Scream fan since as long as I had the old VHS tape from the thrift store of the original one. And I'm happy to see that for what some legacy horror franchises are doing or have done in the past where they kind of overbloat what they're doing. And I don't see that necessarily happening here from what you're saying and, and kind of the energy of what the Scream franchise brings to the horror landscape. It's just such a weird, fun angle on what slasher stuff is. And I, I feel like if they're keeping up the energy, then I'm I'm all there through, through the new ones, you know, bring on Scream, the new class. If we're going to get some stuff like that. I think there was already like an mtv show about that there was and i think it was supposed to be okay but i also don't know if it has anything to actually do right (laughs) yeah the continuity of the movies 
I think it's way out there, so I, I think we're good on that. But, you know, whatever. as long as they're keeping this fun energy up, I'll, I'll follow them through what they're going to be doing. Yeah, but what say you, Seamus, we move on to a main segment, baby? Oh, let's do it, mama. This week's main segment, we are covering the John Carpenter TV movie from 1979, Elvis, starring our boy, Kurt Russell. I had not really thought about until today. We watched this yesterday, right? Elvis died in 77. I was thinking about this this morning, too, about it was like the the craziest turnaround. And we'll get more into this in spoilers, that classic line. The <laughs> way that they end it and kind of how they leave us with Elvis, that kind of makes a lot more sense of how early it was. This movie is, again, I re- referenced up top that I have seen the new Baz Luhrmann film. It's quite a spectacle. Austin Butler's fantastic. It's not good. This movie, really, while there are definitely things that I think are missing, and we'll get into those, it's a really well-done look at the cost of fame on Elvis and the people in his life in a way that I've never seen done in an Elvis piece of media before. Yeah, they really, they hit you right off the bat with some pretty real stuff, and they don't pull a lot of the punches when it gets down to, like, his personality, like, his character when he was prime Elvis, so it was fascinating to see. Both of us love Kurt Russell as John Carpenter. That's one of the very first things we bonded over when we met, that and Frasier. The two (laughs) best pieces of media, anything with those two, and Frasier. Yeah. This is the first collaboration between Carpenter and Russell going from this, then two years later in 81, going to Escape from New York, then The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, then Escape from L.A., right? I think so, yeah, yeah, that's right. Such a steady, incredible collaboration between them, and it was incredible to see their their start together because, one, like you're saying, this TV movie is, like, incredibly well done, and two, Kurt is killing it as Elvis in in this movie. He is channeling something deep down, and I know he's been very public about his very real-life appreciation and respect for Elvis Presley and his history with Elvis Presley and all that, and for three hours we sat next to each other going, Wow, he's really good at being Elvis. He really looks like Elvis, huh? And he he's he's fantastic. There are so many shots in this movie, and that's exactly what you were saying, that we kept saying it over and over, where he is indistinguishable from Elvis. It's crazy. kind of crazy. Because if you look at Kurt Russell, I wouldn't go like, yeah, that's Elvis. In my head, they even have entirely different face shapes. Yeah, yeah sure, but when they throw on that hair and they, they do his eyes the way they do it and they shoot him from a lot of these over-the-shoulder angles and these, like, profile angles where you can just, like, see Elvis Presley. It's crazy. The actors love to say, well, I wasn't really doing an impression of Elvis, you know? <laughs> I was doing my version of Elvis, whatever. He's doing a really good Elvis impression. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he really is. To the point that when Kurt Russell, an actor who I have seen probably more than any actor bar like Sam Jackson. Yeah, sure. He's an actor I've seen so much, but he's doing such a good job that when his voice actually pokes through Elvis, when the Kurt Russell pokes through Elvis, it's really noticeable and a little jarring, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I think he says, like, are you kidding me in an angry voice at some point? And it's like, it's Jack Burton. It's like, uh, you could lift that from the audio track of Big Trouble, and it felt like it shattered <laughs> shattered my world for a second. <laughs> We've talked about Russell. What do you think of this as a Carpenter movie, Seamus? I mean, I'm always an admirer of his work. And, well, I mean, obviously it's very early, and it's a TV movie that's a biopic. So, like I said, it's not going to be like watching Big Trouble or whatever. But there are moments, there are shots in this in this movie, once we get into it, where he's getting a little more creative, that I was like, oh, there it is. There are the seeds that, that will flourish into what I know is going to be this guy that I've been obsessed with since I was a preteen, more or less. And I wouldn't probably pop this on as my first John Carpenter pick, but it is still incredibly well done and uh, appreciated to see those those early works where they were what about you what, what were you what were you feeling with the carpenter side of things this is definitely the straightest i've ever seen carpenter play it oh yeah definitely and as much as i love john carpenter and i think you might push back on me on this a little bit because i i don't love him nearly as much as you do i often feel like carpenter's films are missing an, an emotional core that could be stronger you know, like okay, yeah, I can agree with that though. I, I'm not, I'm not 
that blind in my admiration of his works that I, I, I definitely see what you're talking about. The emotional core in this movie is the most effective emotional core I have ever seen in a Carpenter film. I can totally agree with that. What's the last Carpenter film you can name where, like, there was a very genuine, realistic feeling relationship between, like, a mother and a son? Like, that is a very huge part of this movie and obviously part of Elvis's real life. And it was done so well that we were, like, we were joking with the whole mama thing, but, like, we were there for it. Shelley Winters plays mama. <laughs> and <laughs> I think much like her role in The Poseidon Adventure... This maternal tragic in that she's so plagued and so worried, but also trying to be there for the people that need her then and are trying to support her in her time Mm, of, of stress and strain. She's so good at balancing that just dazzling humanity that she, of course, multiple-time Oscar winner, multiple-time Oscar nominee, as great a casting as Kurt Russell is in this movie, I think it's really, really lucky that they had her. Because otherwise, it just wouldn't resonate. Like, for example, in the Baz Luhrmann film that just came out, I don't know who the actor is, and it's not that she didn't do a fine job in the in the new movie, but... She and Austin Butler did not have this chemistry. They didn't spend the time mm, on yeah. the relationship between Elvis and his mother that you need to because it is so clear in the through line of this movie. And it's not to say that these movies didn't focus on different things, but I would say that clearly there's a lot that Lerman kind of lifted. If not from this movie, they were pulling from the same sources. Mm-hmm, yeah, That emotional resonance needs to be there between the mother and son. It's so important. I mean, while we're on this family emotional dynamic between mother and son of course but then also the three members of the presley family that we focus on including kurt russell's actual father who plays elvis's dad in the in the movie their dynamic together bing bing (laughs) that's my that's my ned ryerson right on yeah sure But their their little small family stuff all the way through the beginning and I mean through the entire movie obviously is very strong and the connection is there and the lights in their eyes when they're speaking to each other and the emotionality when they're having those harder moments. It, the the realism of their tiny family pokes through so well, obviously because of the mom, but also because of Bing Russell just doing his thing. He he has obviously less of a role uh, in the movie and in Elvis's life, I think, but. All of them together, it was such a it's such a sweet and bittersweet in a lot of moments way to play that family. I think we should return to the family unit, what happens to them in the second half. I agree. Once we call spoilers. Because I actually think that, that around the halfway point of this movie, that family unit, the way the film focuses on them, I really wish it would stay with it a little bit more. It, it yeah. kind of turns its attention to other flashier things. Which we will, of course, get into. Not to mention we also have... I'm just trying to call out a few quick other cast members. The woman who would become, briefly, Kurt Russell's real-life wife, Susan Hubley, is here playing Priscilla Presley. The viewers may also know her, as we did, as the <laughs> yeah. the woman that Snake Plissken first meets when he arrives in Escape from New York down in the chock-full-of-nuts storefront down uh, on street level when the mole people are all coming out. The iconic moment, of course. And then also Pat Hingle as Colonel Tom Parker, a character who I really, really, really thought would have a lot more to do with this <laughs> Me movie. too, dude, He's in like me too. scenes. <laughs> that, like, there's a couple times where they're just like, call the colonel, he'll know what to do, and like, that's it. I really love Pat Hingle. I think he's a great actor. That's one of the great pleasures of watching a 70s tv movie like this is you get some really classic performers Mm -hmm. that maybe weren't the biggest stars of their era but are doing really more interesting again character roles right it's character actors and so i was a little sad to not get a little bit more from him in this role which infamously now of course tom hanks has taken the helm (laughs) of the colonel in the new Baz Luhrmann film and did I think probably the worst performance of Hanks' career. 
which is not to say that it isn't endearing or charming, but definitely up against, I think, Austin Butler. If Rami Malek won an Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody, Austin Butler should absolutely at least get a nomination for this new film. That movie focuses so much more on the relationship between the Colonel and Elvis, and it's fine that this movie wasn't interested in that, but I do think it's weird to introduce him, do kind of a big to-do about introducing him, and then not focus at all about the role he really had on Elvis's uh, psyche and, and mindset during the later years of his career. Yeah, they even have a couple moments where Elvis is like unhappy with how his stuff is being produced, his films and his music, and I think they literally, again, just say, call the colonel, he'll know what to do. Like, he'll fix it for you, don't worry. And then they don't even go in on that he was probably more or less uh, part of the major reasons that Elvis was unhappy with his career at the time. So it's a it's an interesting gloss over for, for this three hours. I mean, who knows what was left on the cutting room floor? It was already three hours long. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, could it lose some stuff in the front half? Yes. <laughs> Maybe. It has, could it lose 15 seconds per shot in the first half? <laughs> yeah, Almost definitely. definitely. Uh, that was kind of nice for us, though. I think we kept saying that we should have really done a commentary track yeah, while yeah. we were watching. Because not that we don't chat during movies, but it really allowed us to talk about what we were watching. Definitely. It gave us that, that breathing room. For, I guess, the cut for television that was made to fit in lots of commercials? Because, man, oh, man. I was reading that the night it premiered, it was up against Gone with the Wind on CBS. So, I mean, Gone with the Wind's a four-hour movie. So, Elvis, I mean, you could probably finish (laughs) up Elvis and then go go see, you know... A second half of that uh, Gone with the Wind there. (laughs) It's actually funny because there are points in this incredibly well shot. We haven't talked about that, how well shot this movie is. During this incredibly well-shot movie where we were like, this kind of looks like Gone with the Wind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely a couple a couple key moments where we, we had that thought. It's incredible how, especially when we get out into real places and out into nature and out into on-location shooting, it really shines, the cinematography in this film. Now, the cinematographer here was Donald M. Morgan, who collaborated on what I think is one of Carpenter's best shot and most underrated films, Starman. Oh, I actually have not seen Starman. What? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's on my blind list. That's a shame because it was also just playing on 70 at the Music Box. Oh, that's right. That's right. He also shot Robert Zemeckis' first feature used cars, which I've never seen, but also starring Kurt Russell. Oh, nice. Just like this film, let's acknowledge that before I think we move into spoilers. This is one of the most obscure films we've ever covered, not only in probably the number of people that are familiar with its existence, but it's pretty inaccessible. I think the only way that I can find to watch it is to watch it the way we did, which is to order the Shout Factory Blu-ray. That's going to be a hard one for you folks to catch up on. Email popculturereferencepod at gmail.com with your address, and we'll mail my copy of the Blu-ray around like the original Netflix, because that's the fastest way anyone's going to get it. We'll DM you for postage. <laughs> yeah, there it is, there um, it is. Oh, no, that's our Patreon. It's just old-school Netflix for one movie with one copy that's of it. That's really it funny. The Sisterhood of the Traveling Copy of Elvis on blu-ray we'll get one of those old school library cards that they put <laughs> yeah, in the front yeah. of a book and stick it in the front if i was recommending it i would say find it any way you can if like order the blu-ray it was a nice it was very filmy grainy and i kind of loved it but it, it was very well done transfer the audio was a little bit off which is strange for a, a musical biopic but how much was that you got this for me for my birthday actually so yeah. this is this is my so, birthday episode uh-oh. i guess i've got a because... good many Decent Shout Factories on my shelf now, and I, I, I definitely recommend them. They're a wonderful boutique Blu-ray company, if you're not familiar. Right now, it is available on Blu-ray on the Shout Factory website for $23. That's not even that bad. Pretty good for what you're getting here. Also, there's that commentary track we didn't touch yet with the guy who did the vocals for Elvis, is that right? Yes, correct. Ronnie McDowell. Good Elvis. Good singing on that guy, for sure. It's great. And most of the time, the lip syncing is pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Early on, little baby Elvis couldn't couldn't do it for his life, but once we get into it, it's not not too bad. Yeah, you can also get the DVD for $16, so... It's not that bad. Sure, there's budget issues or whatever, but I don't think it looks like a 1979 made-for-TV movie. I think it looks pretty nice. 
Oh, definitely, definitely. I know this is weird because it's history, but, like, should we call spoilers for Elvis's life now? <laughs> yeah, and, and... I guess so, yeah. There's a couple of things that happen throughout this film that I think are interesting. One, of course, the big emotional moment at the center of the film is when Mama dies. Again, we're making jokes. Genuinely so sad when that <laughs> happened. The pain in Elvis. He loved his mama so much, Garrett. It's insane. It does a really good job at showing much better than the stupid Lerman movie. It's just, it's <laughs> insane to me. How... At this point, I'll just rewatch this one. I don't think I'm going to go see the yeah. new one. I mean, it's a spectacle. It's a spectacle. That's what the new one's good for. There are good performances in it. If you want to watch Elvis shimmy his legs to Toxic by Britney Spears, that's the movie for oh, you. Oh, great. Awesome. But it doesn't necessarily try to absolve Elvis of the fact that he's so focused on getting the kind of material success that he is obsessed with that he can't hear his mother's wishes that she just wants to be with him, not have Graceland and her pink Cadillac and all of these material goods that he's pushing on her and that it's overwhelming her and that that is something that eventually leads to her substance abuse problems, which again, I feel like for 1979, even though obviously they can't get as distinctly into those topics they are showing them and talking about them that's a big part of why i really liked a lot of this movie here is that when they're explaining all of the darker parts of elvis and they're setting up how much of an anchor his mother is to him in his life kurt russell plays it really well how lost elvis is even though he's just like rapid fire giving away cars and eating his good food and he's having his fun times and even if that is what he is truly obsessed with he is more on the side of what his mother wants than he's willing to admit to himself he's like just pushing himself farther and farther and the desperation of what that brings him to when he finally does lose his mother is is devastating after that they kind of stop focusing on the original presley family unit because they they switch over to much more focusing on his relationship with his entourage mm. and more specifically his relationship with Priscilla and Lisa Marie, their daughter. And I wish that we had seen the ultimate unraveling of the original Presley family. It's something maybe that they just didn't want to do because it was so recent after Elvis's actual death, and I'm assuming his father was still alive at that point. But it did feel like the third act of that part of the story was missing. Yeah, it, it seemed like they wrapped up this miniseries is in the frame of a flashback from Elvis's like big return in Vegas. And they kind of wrap it up a little nicer on the back end of that when they, they come back out of the flashback and on the tail end of it, there's that punch that might be missing from what was happening there. Yeah, they end this movie in, I would say, like around 1969, 1970, because that's where we yeah, come yeah. in in Vegas at the beginning at the International with Elvis as referenced in our intro, shooting his television. <laughs> yeah, like a psycho that he was. And so they end this movie with Elvis being very unhappy in Las Vegas. It's like a dancing monkey. He's just this performer who has lost everything good in his life, everything that he values in his life, his entourage in his father. It's his entourage and his father standing off stage going like, man, he's going to go on forever. He's, yeah, exactly. He's immortal. His father's just standing there the same way, not comforting his son who is just right before he went on. The last thing we see Elvis really do in the movie is talk to Lisa Marie on the phone and sob and cry. His yeah. father mm -hmm. does nothing to comfort him. So it's not like they don't subtextually show things like that his mother's gone his marriage has fallen apart his daughter just wants to be with him and be around him it's all slipping away and they end this movie with elvis fundamentally unhappy and the only thing that seems yeah. to give him any kind of life is when he's performing he goes back to his big comeback and he's like electric again and anybody who knows the last couple years of his life that absolute decline into unhealthy body unhealthy mind unhealthy habits of every single kind like melting this man away and they end it with that like triumphant comeback after what is him and his best friend red who have we even talked much about red at yeah. all in this? red is I mean, the frame device of this film essentially that he he and red are sitting, are sitting together baby <laughs> <laughs> and they're and they're reminiscing about 
all of their time since high school. I really liked high school Elvis. That was like one of my favorite Oh parts. yeah, that was good. Bully is trying to cut his hair. He's too different. They're trying to cut his hair and Red and his other original friends appreciating Elvis under the tree for his music and all that. It's very, very good stuff. They have this strange ending ending, the very end of the movie. That is a really visually striking image. Elvis frozen in time, seemingly on some kind of turntable. The international stage, the band, the lights all fade to black out from behind him. Mm -hmm. They play these flashbacks superimposed over the negative space in the frame of his entire life from when he was a boy and he got his first guitar, his first big show and playing the Opry and, and playing in Germany when he when he meets Priscilla. It's very moving. It is yeah, an emotionally intense hell. way to end this film. I knew we were going to get into a very sad territory with Elvis in this movie, but it, I mean, we both knew a lot of this stuff going into it about like his life and his relationships and, and what happened to him, but it was... The ups and downs of, because you always want to, you're always rooting for Elvis. Maybe it's because it's Kurt Russell and I love the man. Maybe because it's Elvis and he's like a god at this point and it's hard to not root for him. But like the pain that he goes through and, and the way that they show that in those flashbacks and the, the small things that lift him up that he just slowly loses is so, so emotional and so sad. So sad. But again, it shows how self-destructive he is and it doesn't try to excuse a lot of his behavior i mean sure could it go further absolutely they're very upfront about the fact that when he calls priscilla's dad when he was 24 in the army and she was 14 her dad is like she's just a child elvis i don't think i'm comfortable with this like any sane father should sending your 14 year old daughter to go live with somebody who's like i'm gonna marry her one day sir I'll take it to school, sir. It'll be okay. Like, Whoa, that's not the problem, Elvis. Like, that's not what... I guess it was the problem because he did, did send her off, but... Very upfront about the age difference and the issues with that between Elvis and Priscilla. Very upfront about the problematic ways that he ended up treating the people in his life when he, when he turns on poor Red. Oh, dude, that hurt. Because, again, Red is so good he's like the good in elvis he's elvis's twin brother he talks to the better uh -huh. of everyone and and he shuts him out he's like you don't have to come to my wedding man it's no big deal i'm gonna fire everyone in my entourage on a whim because i'm pissed off right now it's it's really sad let's talk about jesse garen and elvis aaron the really compelling way that that remains a through line throughout this film because you referenced the three members of the presley family but i would say that there are four very true very true there's a lot of really interesting sequences where he, elvis is alone talking to his deceased twin brother and that goes back to some of those incredibly well shot angles of him on his profile where we see a silhouette that he's talking to, he's interacting with his brother, and the only way he knows how to find comfort in who he is is by, like, his counterpart, who he's always stuck with. It's very, again, incredibly sad, but very moving when we see those scenes where he's just sitting alone in that very specifically lit way that, that happens, like, two or three times. Especially because it's clear that that is something that him and his mother really connect over. And then once oh, she's yeah, yeah. gone, he explicitly says, Jesse, if I could have one wish, I wish I could talk to mom again. Mo mama. Oh, oh. That is more interesting than if they just had this like weird twin brother yeah, talking. Yeah. The fact that he gives his mother two hearts intertwined. I'm yeah, assuming yeah. that's a real brooch that Elvis gave his mother oh, when I can he gives only her the imagine, pink Cadillac. Yeah. And one is for Jesse and one is for him. There's a point where she goes, I believe that you have the energy of two people in you. That when Jesse Aaron died, that that went to you. Yeah, that definitely drives a lot of that obsession in his uh, talent and success. I would say, you know, obviously so much of it is about his his mother and father supporting them and, and bringing them out of the poverty that they he grew up in. But like everything else is seemingly like oh of course the monetary side of it but when it gets to the spiritual esoteric side of like what is making him this caliber of performer it, it goes back to like doing it for who he thinks he's already lost and then he just keeps losing people and it just makes him it drags him farther down instead of propelling him forward it's it's so intense 
And that's why, and again, I understand why, given the time that this was made, they didn't. I wish that we had gotten a little bit more into what life was like on the road for Elvis, and then what eventually happened to him later in his life with, with drugs and women. This movie sets up a really neat device of portraying Elvis as, as two men, portraying Elvis as two personalities. He's yeah, yeah. the public Elvis, and then he's the private Elvis. And that that duality, you know, the shadow imagery, him talking to Jesse, the two hearts, the way his mother says that he has two men inside him. Like, I think that that is so resonant that I really wish that they had been able to get a little bit more into those elements of Elvis that were less idyllic, less well-behaved, less 1979 TV-friendly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Overall, while I do think this is an incredibly moving portrayal of Elvis's relationship with his mother and a good study of Elvis as a flawed individual. There are things missing that are probably both for the constraints of what was acceptable at the time and also the constraints of their budget could have elevated this film to be, I think, the definitive interpretation of Elvis in cinema. Now, there is also a little bit of an issue which we haven't touched on at all, this movie very briefly acknowledges the fact that Elvis grew up around black people. Very briefly, yes. Very briefly. And does not talk at all about how he co-opted, stole that type of music, the type of dance moves, the type of sound. They have one conversation when he goes to Sun Records the first time, I think, about how he's a white boy with that kind of sound. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I know that's a bigger thing in the Lerman one now. I, Even I, though it's not really like I don't think it's condemning him any more frankly than <laughs> Oh, no? No, because because they they have scenes in the Lerman one with BB King where BB King's like, "Yeah, Elvis, you got to get out in there and sing our music because we can't because you're a white so, boy and you can Jesus do it without Christ. going to jail or whatever." Like and I'm like, this movie was made in 2022, guys. Oh, God, yeah, that's that's rough. That is super rough. I mean, at least in this one, it's like young baby Elvis singing on his porch with his, like, black neighbors, and then young Kurt in just, uh, I think it was Sun Records? No, it wasn't Sun Records. It was pawn some shop. other, yeah, pawn shop where he's just, like, listening in to, like, five exquisite black jazz rock musicians. Singing That's All Right, Mama, which would, of course, become Elvis's first hit as they show in this film. Yeah, so they, they there's a little bit, but not enough in any right. Now, I think that giving Carpenter the benefit of the doubt as the filmmaker, those things are placed there subtextually, but it does oh, not yeah, reckon yeah. with them any near as much as it should or could. That is more specifically an artifact of its time than the other choices to not get into the later Elvis problems yeah, are yeah. probably just more out of respect for a legend or whatever. You and I talked about this a lot watching the movie yesterday. Basically, after Elvis gets famous, we don't see him perform until the very end of the movie. Yeah, that was weird, huh? Like, he, he's got a couple, like, talent show performances and drugstore openings that we get to see, but it really doesn't... Like, he's on the road a lot. Like, we see him calling from being on tour and and all that, but not much else until the end, like you said. And that's where they clearly put their budget, but that's one of the things that's keeping it from feeling like the definitive version, is that we don't see Elvis mania at its height. Yeah, exactly. We see it start out, we see people get excited and storm the stage and everything else. And you know, Mama has her X-Men moment where she, like, has a vision of it all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They ultimately don't get into the the wilder part of Elvis's fame a little bit later in his career. Overall, though, I think this is still probably, of the versions that I've seen, the best version of Elvis ever put on screen. Honestly, don't think I've seen any other ones, so I agree with you. This one, I mean, I thought it was fantastic on its own merit, me not being able to compare it to really much else besides what I actually know about the man. I thought it was very well done, and I will rewatch this. It's going to sit on my shelf and be used many times, I, I'll tell you. Are you saying that the most historically accurate Elvis film has escaped your memory, uh, One Forest Gump? Oh, God, shut up. I know you love Forrest. You, you're always trying to put on Forrest Gump, Gary. What's your problem? You're Forrest to... Gump is my favorite movie. Yeah, and... historically, you love how how long it is and how bloated it is. I love all of its little kisses with history and how 
It shows how real-life hero Forrest Gump uh, influenced things like the civil rights movement. Forrest Gump was more important than Jesus Christ in modern history and just, like, fully did everything. I think that's an objectively true statement. (laughs) Forrest Gump should be on the $20 bill. I've always said that. I'll give you, I'd rather have Forrest Gump than Andrew Jackson, so I will concede that. That's me being for, for real. Tom Hanks winking at you from the 20? That'd be nice. How about the Colonel? How about Tom Hanks? Oh, as the Tom Colonel Hanks as the Colonel. <laughs> oh, no. And I think this little detour officially means we need to wrap <laughs> up our main segment. Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. Shout out to the one peanut butter and banana sandwich when he fires yes! his crew. Yes. Sh- shout out excellent. to the Cadillacs. Shout out to. There's a couple other really weird, funny specifics that were in there. Natalie Wood shows up for a minute there. That's interesting. Not real Natalie Wood. Oh, no, no, not, not real Natalie Wood. You and I cheered like it was the biggest Marvel Easter egg in the world when Elvis left that kitchen and behind him there was <laughs> yeah. a, a loaf of bread and bananas out of focus. Oh, truly cinema. John Carpenter, you've done it again. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the legacy and relationship between actor Kurt Russell and megastar, the king of rock himself, Elvis Presley. The legacy of Elvis and the career of Kurt Russell have been closely linked since Russell's earliest role. Russell made his on-screen debut in an uncredited role in the 1963 film It Happened at the World's Fair, as a young boy who kicks Elvis in the shin. He would later recall that his admiration and respect for Presley made it hard for him to do so, but was paid $5 from the man himself to complete the scene. After 16 years, Russell took on the role of the king in the 1979 TV movie Elvis, and started another legacy with his continued work with director John Carpenter. He would later briefly reprise his role in Forrest Gump in 1994 to rip off his famous pelvic thrusting dance moves while imitating the movements of the young Gump in leg braces. Russell's last role related to the king came out in 2001's 3,000 Miles to Graceland, in which Russell plays a career thief who believes himself to be Elvis's illegitimate son. The film also centers around a memorable sequence in which Russell's gang of thieves rob a Las Vegas casino dressed as Elvis impersonators during an Elvis convention. I would love, if this is out there, please send it to us, YouTube videos from some press junket that we didn't find (laughs) in our research, but I would love to hear Kurt Russell talk more explicitly about all of the roles related to Elvis that he's done, not just, you know, talking about his time during it happened at the World's Fair, which actually, that clip briefly plays of him kicking Elvis in the shins in the new Baz Luhrmann. Oh, There's that's that. perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. I've seen some interviews or read some interviews of just, like, how absolutely respectful and full of admiration he is for Elvis Presley, which, I mean, obviously, who wouldn't be in that time, especially if you got to, like, be in his presence and, like, speak and work with him, and especially in the 1979 one we just watched, like, you can see how much dedication and respect he puts into that role. I have a few on this list here that I need to see myself, like, 3,000 Miles to Graceland, I, I think is super high on our list together. Totally. Even though it's really not that good of a movie, it's just <laughs> such a bonkers premise. Honestly, here's my pitch. Kurt Russell, we were just talking about how he ghost-directed Tombstone, right? Of course. Kurt Russell, remake, 3,000 Miles to Graceland, Wyatt Russell in the Kurt Russell role. That would be probably like a supernova of Russell Presley energy. Like, it would destroy the world, but it would probably be awesome, if I'm being honest. We remake good things all the time. Why not remake bad things that have awesome premises? Yeah, seriously, that premise is so dynamite, and I I would love to see that remade in in a way that's more satisfactory, I suppose. I mean, it's got to be better than his part in Forrest Gump for that 30 seconds that he kind of soils Elvis' legacy. That he's out of focus in the background. (laughs) Yeah. Why get Kurt Russell to do that? (laughs) Yeah, right? Although, as previously mentioned, Kurt Russell starred in Robert Zemeckis' feature debut, Used Cars. Oh, well, there it is. There's the connection there. Also shot by Elvis cinematographer Donald M. Morgan. So it all comes back. It's all there. The dots connect. In this hypothetical pitch, two lead characters in 3,000 Miles of Graceland, right? There's the Kurt Russell and there's the Kevin Costner. If we're putting Wyatt Russell in the Kurt Russell role, who are we putting in Kevin Costner? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, you're the one who's seen this movie. Who comes to your mind? 
I'm so I'm drawing so many blanks right now. It's not even funny. I'm trying to think. I feel like I need to see this movie. And also, my mind keeps going to make it a legacy sequel where Kurt Russell and Wy- Wyatt Russell is Kurt Russell's illegitimate son, and then they got to go on that adventure. I feel bad because I put you on the spot, and now I'm having a hard time coming <laughs> up with two podcast hosts fail to come up with an actor's name, any actor's name. <laughs> Oh, I've got it. Actually, I have the... What do you I, got? It's perfect. You're going to love this. And you're going <laughs> to lose Russell? your mind that you didn't say it the second oh, that I brought it up. What do you got? Well, we just saw him being awesome and charming, full of swagger, but also kind of a jerk in Top Gun Maverick, Glenn Powell. Oh, yeah, dude. Hell yeah. That's pretty damn good. I think that's pretty damn good. Glenn Powell, Wyatt Russell, technically Kurt Russell's directorial debut. <laughs> technically, technically. So. All right, I'll get Kurt on the phone right after we're off the, off yeah, the just, horn just here. Yeah, just really quick. I'll drop a line on his personal phone. But let's say we move on to Save the Rec Center. Let's do it, Mama. Now it's time to Save the Rec Center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Seamus, what do you got? I do not have a video game this week, Garrett. Oh. Yeah, that's a surprise for everyone here. My parents here. are standing up and cheering <laughs> somewhere right now. Uh, well, your parents should sit down and put on Walk Hard, The Ballad of Dewey Cox, the best musical biopic I have ever seen in my entire life. It is Johnny Cash and Elvis and every single blues, rock, southern... Everything and also like also the Beatles and like Van Halen kind of and like all it's every 60s to 80s musical icon rolled into one John C. Riley role. And it's incredible. It's maybe the funniest big budget comedy movie I of all times. Maybe I, I know that's a lot of movies, but I think it's so funny. In every single way, all the gags are priceless. There, there's almost like an airplane top secret amount of gags, but in a way that they're still telling a very cohesive, funny parody story of this character. And I think you haven't seen Walk Hard. I think you just know a lot of the jokes, but... That is true, including the one in our intro this yeah, week. Yeah, it goes right back to the intro there. And one, John C. Riley is a comedy icon in this movie. Like, he's so funny. I mean, alongside everyone else, star-studded cast of people that play every... It's almost a Forrest Gump level of historical figures, but they play into it, so it's not as annoying. My favorite movie, Forrest Gump. Exactly. Exactly. So you've sold me. Perfect. We've talked about Forrest Gump in three of our main segments today. Now it really solidifies <laughs> it. But uh, it's it's so incredibly funny, and John C. Riley is a top class musician. His voice is actually incredible. He does all of the music in the movie for his character, and I mean, he's obviously been in a few other musical positions before but this is like he is a star as dewey cox and i couldn't recommend it more in this couple weeks of elvis mania coming back i was about to say it's a shame john c Riley never got to do robert altman but i guess he works with pt anderson so that's basically yeah the there you go there you go but yeah i would like to watch that sometime soon because i've always heard wonderful things and i think it's one of those Movies that I've excused myself from not watching because I already know so many of the gags, right? Right, yeah. We know what we'll do. I'll probably watch it before this, but... (laughs) Okay, okay. When the Weird Al movie comes out, which is kind of a contemporary answer to Dewey Cox, we do Dewey Cox's prep for the show. I 100% agree with that idea. I I love them both, and it would be a pleasure to watch Walk Hard with you, because it's, again, incredible. And I would be very happy to watch it. Even if you do watch it before it comes out, please let me know, because I want to watch it with you. Will do, absolutely. But what do you got this week, Garrett? Lay it on me. Well, I already kind of spoiled it for you when we were watching Elvis yesterday, as you kind of spoiled yours for me when we were watching (laughs) Elvis. That's true, that's true. I had started it earlier in the year when it initially premiered, but finally I've circled back around to Apple TV Plus's The After Party, which is a absolutely star-studded murder mystery. Murder mysteries are back. Thank you, Ryan Johnson. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. We've got Tiffany Haddish as a detective trying to solve the murder of a celebrity at a high school reunion where the attendees include... Sam Richardson, Ben Schwartz, Dave Franco, Ike Barinholtz. Oh, but that's a good list right off the top, though. Vicky from The Good Place. 
She's hey. there. She's hey. not getting a ton to do. Alana Glazer, a really fantastic cast. It has a really unique little twist of a premise, which I really enjoy, which is every episode is a different person's account of the night of the murder told in a different genre oh. of story. So like an action film, a romantic comedy, etc. That's all really of- cool. This will all make sense in a second when I tell you that it was created and directed entirely by Christopher Miller. There you go. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So some of the episodes work better than others, I would say. But overall, it's a very fun, satisfying murder mystery narrative. Honestly, I think that in terms of being an actual mystery, it is more satisfying than the first season of Only Murders in the Building. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess that would be pit up right up against only murders too so i understand that tiffany haddish is going to be coming back in a new season with a new cast and and murder mystery just like benoit blanc is coming back this november very nice very nice like heroes journeys every episode here of pop culture reference is entirely cyclical so just bringing it back <laughs> one more time with that christopher miller connection here's hoping that after party season two brings us wyatt russell as a suspect oh, i can only hope That would be another just absolute nail in the coffin for me watching this show, so. (laughs) Well, that wraps us up for this 98th episode of Pop Culture Reference, and next week we're going to be covering The Boys Season 3, which recently wrapped up on Amazon Prime. If you want to reach the show, tweet us all your best mamas. Uh, (laughs) You can tweet us at PCR underscore podcast. Also find us at PCR underscore podcast on TikTok. And Instagram, TikTok, we're back up and running on that oh, bad boy. Yeah. Don't even worry about it. Spicy talks right now. Spicy talks. Tweet us with hashtag spicy talk. Don't <laughs> don't don't hashtag it on Instagram though. Just just on Twitter. Yes, please. And definitely not on TikTok. <laughs> uh, email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Engage with us on any other platform that you're listening on or engaging on because it really really helps the show out. So, as previously mentioned, we're most likely covering Season 3 of The Boys next week, which I'm very excited as somebody who just wrapped it up, and you have not started it, Seamus, to hear your thoughts. I'm excited to binge it all right now. Oh, it's going to be very fun to to chat about all of our friends over in the soup dystopia that is The Boys. Can't wait to do it, man. But until then, we're going to be down at the end of Lonely Street. Nightmare Alley. Ooh, yeah, baby. How long have you been holding on to that? <laughs> I've been sitting on it all day, baby. Uh, well, uh, we'll leave you with that, folks. See you next week. <laughs> Adios, baby. Adios, baby.